Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Today follows, um, at least for me, uh, two very special Sundays. Um, And I want to, uh, I'm afraid to say this, but take you on a little ride in my head for a few minutes here. Um, I'm sorry for you on that. But uh, let me kind of tell you a little bit what's going on. I think it'll help with today. Uh, Two Sundays ago, we had... um, given the opportunity, just in light of the text where we're at, for you to write some, a load of weight, uh, things that are going on in your life on a piece of paper, crumple them up, and just come up and kind of cast them before the Lord. Hebrews 12.1, cast your cares upon the Lord. Psalm 55.22. Um, and so I have them here today, all 465 of them. Uh, yes, I counted them. Um, you wonder what I do. Uh, with my time. Um, And then last Sunday, just wow, what a powerful Sunday. I won't soon forget. We got to hear the Apostle Paul tell his redemption story of of how Christ came and utterly, radically changed his life. And he told his story. And so we grabbed a hold of that and we had uh, Ed come and tell his redemption story and Francoise tell hers. And then we had Ali tell his and I'm still savoring those stories. You too? Still savoring those. And then getting in my head comes Monday morning. Um, this job kind of has a unique thing to it sometimes. After a few weeks like that, you're kind of like, so where do you go from here? Um, and then I enter my office, and Monday mornings are kind of days for me reading the text and beginning my study um, for the week. And I was just savoring these last couple Sundays in the text, and um, two thoughts come to mind. One was, wow, I kind of scheduled a pretty long text for me this Sunday. Um, what was I thinking? Uh, and then secondly, is honestly, is what am I going to do with this text? I mean, I know I had a sermon title even in kind of on the calendar for it, but just as I sit now and look at it, what am I going to do with this text? So I, uh, I read it again and again and again, and, and then I read in commentators and what others have to say about after they read it again and again and again. And, and, and then this to- text is just so noisy. It's kind of been that way, a lot of noise going on in the activities of Paul's life, and there's just a lot of noise going on. And And I found myself after the day goes on just asking the question, I think I've made mention of it before, but just the question of, so what keeps Paul going? I mean, really, what is it that keeps him going? What is the truth that he anchors himself to that keeps him going? What is that truth? I want to know what's going on in his mind. So as that question just is rolling through my mind during the day, all of a sudden as I'm reading the text again and spending time with it, there's all of a sudden this one sentence that just kind of stands out and begin digging into it more and coming to find out 
I think this is it. I think this is it. I think this is the sure hope that Paul really, when it comes down to it, really pulls himself to and anchors himself to. And I'm looking forward to taking you there today. I want for you to know this. Today is kind of more of what I would call a doxology sermon. You can see on the walls we have worship Christ, walk with Christ, work for Christ. Worship Christ is a doxology thing. It's a eyes to the Lord, seeing the Lord, but the doxology thing carries into the walk with Christ. That's an abiding thing with Christ. The doxology thing drives the abiding thing, and it's out of the abiding thing that work for Christ. It's, so it's, it's overflows. So uh, the doxology thing flies into an abiding thing, which overflows into an overflowing thing of life. Today, I just want for you to know, it, it's the front of it. It's a doxology thing. It's something to think. You may walk away going, so what do I do? do but listen if we don't have our eyes pointed in the right place the other stuff won't fall into place so I just want for you to know that we're on a doxology thing today Uh, if you haven't already open your Bibles to Acts 22 we'll be starting in verse 22 today and going through all of chapter 23 I'm going to bring it all back to one sentence um uh, here this is what's happening I'm going to read the entire text I, I just I could sum it all up with you and do that, but I think it's too important. There's too many cool things happening in the text. Plus, we're on a journey with Paul, and it's going to be carrying into the coming couple Sundays. And so I think it's important that we at least engage in the text of the whole together. So I'm going to read the whole thing through, only stopping a time or two with that. We're going to take it all in, and then we're going to come back to this sentence. Maybe you can find the sentence uh, in this as we go through it here. Um, Let me set some context if uh, you're visiting with us. All of this that's happening right now and last week with Paul telling his story is happening around the temple area in Jerusalem. And in the temple area, there is what's called kind of in the back, at least on this rendering, called the Fortress of Antonio. And you can see those four pillars there and then kind of that area that I shaded in with green. Um, we're people, if you look on different diagrams and illustrations of what's going on, we pretty much know the temple grounds for sure. But there's this whole area that, um, well, uh, the fortress of Antonio that we don't quite know exactly how it's all structured out, and there's different views on it all. Uh, Let me put a little background to it because I think it is important for us. The Antonio uh, uh, Fortress, or the Fortress of Antonia, uh, was refurbished and renamed by Herod the Great in uh, 35 BC for Mark Antony. Uh, He had appointed Herod king of Judea. And the Antonia Fortress was the Romans' headquarters in Jerusalem. Uh, At this time, uh, it is under uh, Roman rule. And the fortress overlooked the temple, not only figuratively, but literally as well. In fact, a few uh, facts about it. Josephus, who was a first century historian, wrote a number of things about this whole area. And one of the things he said about Antonia Fortress was that it, it, it was 75 feet over Uh, the uh, temple grounds. In other words, it was not just looking over the temple grounds in a a concept idea. It physically was above and looking over. Imagine if you're an Israelite, how irritating that was for you. It's like, this is the one sacred place for us. And here is the Romans come in and they got to put their towers up and overlook on us and see what's going on with that and be reminded. And so they always have an eye on everything that's going on around that area. Also, uh, Josephus tells us that 
the whole fortress area was more than just a building. It was, he says it was like a small city itself. He notes that it had a palace for a king and barracks for many soldiers. By the way, many soldiers would be hundreds of soldiers, as we'll see here in a little bit. Uh, he also makes mention that it has a large, large courtyards, uh, very likely for horses, for training, and so forth with what's going on. It has steps that led down uh, to the portico of the temple grounds. Uh, that's where Paul uh, gave his story last Sunday as we were there. So we're in the Antonia Fortress. We're following along as we read. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading today. I want the text to, to preach. So we're going to follow it along. Let's pick up chapter 22, beginning in verse 22. Let's read the whole text, and then we'll come back to a sentence. Up to this word, they, the Jerusalem leadership, uh, they listened to Paul. They, up to what word? Uh, that was last Sunday. Up to when Paul, right before that, verse 21, when Paul said to the Gentiles. Um, um, that's, that's the thing that uh, ticked them off. Um, yeah. Up to this word, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Understand, they're all around the steps, around the uh, fortress of Antonio. And uh, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, you got the picture, they're going crazy. Verse 22, or 24, the tribune, or Claudius Lysias, ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Yeah, things were done in a very kind way uh, over history. You know, it's like, basically what's going on is like, I still to this moment can't figure out what in the world is going on. Let's just bring the guy in, beat the life out of him, and then we'll get the truth, okay? Uh, There's... Poor leadership, right, from governing officials, verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, got it? He's on this device being stretched out for the whips. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by him, I wonder the tone. And why didn't he say this earlier? Paul says it now. He says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, uh, he went to Claudius Lysias and said to him, what are you to do about this? Uh, For this man is a Roman citizen. In other words, what they were about to do, you don't do to a Roman citizen. It was illegal. So the tribune came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes. And Claudius Lysias answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. And know this, we don't understand all this dynamics here. I'm not going to go into the, how he purchased a, a, a Roman citizenship, Claudius Lysias, the tribune at the time. But what, the reason Luke is including this in this is the reader at the time, and, and for us to understand, when, when Paul all of a sudden said he was a Roman citizen by birth, and Claudius Lysias, who was technically kind of over him in this situation, uh, is, is now realizing that actually in Roman mindset, Paul actually has... Uh, if you will, almost authority over him. He tops him. He has Roman citizenship by birth. He has it by purchasing it. It adds the tension in the whole thing. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid. In other words, he knew that he was about to break the law and actually what he had done to this point and learning this information was pushing that for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him 
verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, uh, Claudius Lycia had him unbound, commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down to set him before them. In other words, the tribune is basically like, listen, this is ridiculous. I've got to find out what's going on. Paul, I want you in here. I'm going to be in the room, and then I'm calling the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, the council, and, and we're going to talk this out. So he calls uh, an immediate meeting, chapter 23, verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, by the way, again, what an engaging way to, to interact with people who hate your guts. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike Paul on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> um, this is interesting. Hang on. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you ordered me to be struck? Paul knew what was happening right at that moment that this was all unlawful. By the way, how ironic that Luke, the human author of this, is just telling about how the Roman tribune is concerned about following the guidelines of the law, and now the religious leadership, uh, governing leadership in Jerusalem are in there, and they don't care, they're breaking the law. Verse four, those who stood by said, uh, in other words, the others on the council, uh, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Why would Paul say that? You've got to understand, this meeting was likely called kind of in a moment, just come as you are. You have no time to put on all your regalia. Just come. And in that, Paul has been away for years. Paul's been out of Jerusalem for years. He likely, uh, one, may not have known who the high priest or high priest were at that moment, facially, visually in that. Plus, they're not wearing all their stuff to know that. So likely, Paul said what he said, not knowing, well, he didn't know that he was the high priest. That's what he just said. Look at what Paul says, and I want to make a comment on it. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. For people who say that God's word has little application for present times, I push back. Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. this is where Paul is getting this from. It says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Daniel two twenty-one. It says, the Lord changes times and seasons. He removes kings, and hear this, and the Lord sets up kings. Pastor Doug, that was Old Testament guidelines, so that doesn't apply. Oh, that's interesting, because Paul in his scenario was thinking biblically, scripture, scripture first, scripture most. Paul is thinking, in my situation right now, what does scripture have to say about this? And he brings this scripture up from Exodus. Oh, he's bringing the Old Testament in this truth, carrying it into his own life. Oh, by the way, it's in the New Testament. Well, well Pastor Doug, it says kings and rulers. It, it doesn't say presidents or congressmen or senators or governors or mayors. Really? Pastor Doug, the high priest was a spiritual leader, someone we could respect. No, he wasn't at all. He wasn't someone you could respect at all. And yet Paul in the moment realizes that, hey, wait a second. What I said, I shouldn't be saying in this situation. Why? Because God is the one who puts leaders in place. 
Hey friends, can you push back on leadership in our day? Absolutely. And I want for you to know this, what I am saying is not a Republican thing or a Democrat thing or whatever political position you are thing. It is not that at all. It is simply this. God is the one who puts leaders in charge. Be careful with how you speak. Because frankly, I think there's a lot of Christians over the last decades who have been speaking unbiblically about leaders. There's a biblical way to speak. There's an, an unbiblical way. Know the difference. I'm going to let you dig into that. Small groups, maybe you can spend some time on that this week. Romans 13, 1 through 7 carries some truth with that. Let me keep reading. Verse 6, chapter 23. And when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. By the way, it is interesting to note this. He's not saying I was. I am. I'm just think, ponder that. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. In other words, the Sadducees believe in annihilationism, which is when you're dead, you're done. Gone, nothing. There's no spirit, there's no angelic beings, there's none of that. The Pharisees do believe that that's the case. Let's see, they have some comments. They're shooting darts at each other here. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose. and Some of the scribes of the Pharisees who do believe in a resurrection, who do believe in angelic beings, uh, said, we find nothing wrong with this man. That's interesting. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And the Sadducees didn't like that comment. And when the dissension became violent, these are spiritual leaders. I hope you haven't had to be in a church group of leadership like this. Sad to say, I think sometimes it takes place. I'm just so grateful for our leadership. We laugh more than, I was going to say more than violent, but there's no violence. <laughs> all by God's grace and when the dissension became violent the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks by the way I'll just note this a lot of commentators kind of make Paul's comment like Paul was maneuvering a situation trying to position them to get into a fight with each other which is what happened but I'll just say this I just don't think Paul was that manipulative with things I think Paul is speaking truth. And let's keep reading. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. What a moment that must have been. By the way, he didn't just speak. He didn't just stand outside the building and yell through. You see in the text, following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Wouldn't it be nice sometimes to get an advanced knowledge of what's happening? Hmm, hold that thought. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were many, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy 
they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food, and we'll hear in a minute, and no drink, which means this has got to happen quick, we, that we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. He's talking with the leadership, the council here, and they're all in. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, in other words, Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, and so he went and he entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. And the tribune, Claudius Lysias, took him by hand and going aside, asked him privately, oh, what is it that you have to tell me, young man? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But, but, but do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of them are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves to an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So Claudius Lysias dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions, And said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea, which is about a 70-mile trip, at the third hour of night. In other words, like at dark. Verse 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. This is so cool, you guys. Here's Paul. One one day, they're strapping him down to beat the truth out of him. The next day, they have hundreds of Men and, and, and soldiers and horses and spearmen. This is a gladiator moment, isn't it? I mean, and God puts Paul on a horse surrounded by an army, ba-boom, 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 out of town. This is one of those moments where you go, God is awesome, right? I want one of those moments. I don't even know how to ride a horse, but I'll learn. And so what do they do at dark of night? God is using people who don't even care about him to move Paul out of Jerusalem in an awesome way and head him to Rome because Paul is now on his fourth ministry trip. I'll be talking more in the next few weeks about that. I think it's a great error that we have that we only think of Paul doing three ministry trips No, this is one more. Life is not just about certain ministry moments. All of life is a ministry trip. And there are unique chapters that's coming. So Paul is on this awesome group. Verse 25, and Claudius Lycia wrote a letter to Felix saying this. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. He's kind of patting himself on the back. (laughs) Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, 
ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. If you will, signed Claudius Lysias. Verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatras, that would be about 40 miles away, and the next day they returned to the barracks, uh, those men did, letting the 70 horsemen go on with Paul. So here's Paul on a horse, but now he's got 70. He's safe out of town, he's got 70 horsemen that he's going with. Verse 33, and when they had come to Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he, the Felix, learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. We'll pick up there next week. Cool stuff. But what kept Paul going? There's a sentence I want for us to go back to. Join me, if you will, at verse 6. At verse 6. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I like the way the New International Version has it. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection. This hope, by the way, this is not a gee golly whiz hope. This is not a I wish upon a star hope. This is not a uh, all I want for Christmas hope. It's not that. Everybody say it's not that. It's not that. This is a sure hope. That's the terminology that Paul is using here. It's a sure hope, and it's a sure hope because it is founded upon God, it is founded in God, and it is sure by the making of God. Paul has no control over this resurrection. That is something completely out of Paul's hands, out of his control, out of his ability. God is the one who resurrects. Let's dig into this a little further because you could be saying, and rightfully so, I understand it, uh, but Doug, uh, that's simply Paul's response to the claim of what they're doing because they do not want the resurrection of Christ to be confirmed because if they do, then they're dead meat. But hold on, follow me here. That was before Claudius Lysias. Uh, look to chapter 24, we'll be here next Sunday. Uh, look to me, uh, we'll start in the middle of verse 14. 15 is where it is. I, I worship the God of our fathers, mid-14, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the law. Verse 15, chapter 24. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Keep following, uh, verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am in trial before you today. Look at chapter 26. Paul is going up the line in the people that he is talking to. Now he was in a conversation with King Agrippa. We'll get there in a few Sundays. Chapter 26, uh, verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, end of verse 8, that God raises the dead. 22, verse 22 in chapter 26. To this day I have had 
the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You say, Doug, I'm still not convinced yet that that's the grounding thing. Okay, awesome. Turn two books to the right, 1 Corinthians, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Turn to chapter 15. Listen to what Paul says here. This is Paul's thinking. This is an incredibly logical passage, okay? This is logical thinking, and Paul was an attorney, a religious, just a religious uh, PhD kind of guy. Listen to his thinking here, verse 12. He's speaking to the Corinthian church. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection, okay, let's just take that assumption. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation, then our preaching, that is in vain. And in fact, your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. In other words, friends, let's pack it all up and go home if all of it's untrue. We are wasting our time if Christ did not rise from the dead. And not only that, and you are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has and raised from the dead. You see, this is the thing that ultimately girded Paul. And when it comes into his atrocious situation that, that he's being just thrown into wrongly, this is the thing that he comes back to. What truth is Paul anchored to? It's the truth to the, to the sure hope of the resurrection. That is what it is. This life is not all there is, thank God. There are a lot of wonderful things about this life. But understand, this life is a dot on the line of eternity. This life is just a dot on the line of eternity. It is not dead and done. I, I'm sorry, I can't believe it. I'm sorry, I can't believe it. There's something more. There is a coming resurrection, and that resurrection changes everything now. You see, it's not just put up with now, survive through now, just 
No, no, no. Paul is grabbing a hold of what's coming and Paul is pulling it to know. Might I say it this way? Paul, at, let's say he's six foot tall. Paul is from a six foot viewpoint, is looking up doxology and then is understanding what God is doing and what is happening and what God has to say about life and where we are at and Paul is bringing that truth down. And he, with that truth, continues ahead. That's why Jesus stood by him and said, take courage. Why take courage? Because of that. Because there is something greater and there is something eternal. And when that is harnessed into this, you can keep going even when this, theologically speaking, stinks. This resurrection, Doug, can you put a little bit more flesh to that just for a couple months? Yeah, turn to Revelation chapter 20. All of this takes me back to 2015. This thinking, it is a dramatic change for me in my life, seriously. When we preached through the book of Revelation, if you were here, you remember that? Remember the VW van? Yeah, God's vehicle. <laughs> Let me read about this because I'll say it this way. No matter what your eschatological time calendar is, no matter what you think is the next things to be happening in the timeline of God's redemptive history story, we can agree on this. Chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence, earth and sky fled away. By the way, we sing about God's holiness, how he is set apart. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. And then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done verse 14 and then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not written in the book of life he she was thrown into the lake of fire that should cause you great concern but please don't stop there because when John was writing this he didn't have a chapter break in there go to the next thing the bad news is just put on the table there is a day of reckoning and there is one avenue that leads to eternal death but chapter 21 verse 1 but then I saw a, hev a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and the voice is coming from the throne, not someone else making the declaration. This is important. The voice is coming from the one who sits on the throne. Behold the dwelling place. Behold the tabernacling is the idea of the word. Of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe 
away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things, which are our present things, have passed away. You see, Paul knew that one day this resurrection is about, there is a standing and accounting before the God of the universe. And in that accounting, there is a reality of a reckoning as we understand the whole of Scripture that all who received Christ as their Savior, as the covering, as the, the redemption for their sin, as all who have come to know Christ as their Savior, as many who knew Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. And to them, is awesome. But Paul knew that. But Paul, and Paul had that knowing that for him. And so why does Paul keep going? Because he knows for him, that's what it's going to. And it's like, even if it stinks right now, it, it's like, it's gonna be awesome for the line. And it doesn't make now irrelevant, but that's what keeps him going. And not only that, but he also understands, my goodness, there is that for all who know Christ and for those who have not come to Christ, those who have not, are not abiding with Christ. Those, there's, there's eternal disaster. And friends, I, I just straight up, if you're new around here, I'm just not the hellfire and brimstone kind of guy, but it would be the most unloving thing, most unloving thing for me to say, everyone's bound for eternity with God. Because the fact of the matter of Scripture says that is not true. And if you're not sure that you're sure that you're sure, then you need to make sure whether you have a living, breathing, active relationship with God because this is just a dot in the line of what's ahead. And there is hope for you. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Come unto me, all of you are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. By the way, eternal rest. What kept Paul going? Answer, that doxology. That thinking, that understanding, that knowledge of God. That's what kept him going. What kept Paul ministering? That doxology. Knowing that he wanted to live faithfully unto the Lord, but also knowing, friends, there are people around us who don't know Christ, and right now, according to what the Bible says, are bound for eternity, separated from God. And that's just not like a bummer. That's called a living hell. You see, Paul understood that the present things are really former things. By the way, not stranger things, but former things. Those of you who aren't on Netflix, and that's kind of maybe a reminder. There's a show called Stranger Things. It's really cool. Alternate universe stuff. Hmm, that's interesting. But Revelation, it says that these are, for, we live in former things days. Know this, all of this truth doesn't make today and the weights of today easy. 
it doesn't make them all disappear. Could I say it this way? Knowing this means take courage. Take courage. Because this is not it. Look up. Bring it down. Where are you headed right now with your life? Look up. Look down. We live in a former things. All, all of the things that so often bind us up, just being reminded that there are going to be former things. Take courage. Take courage. Yeah. Lord, I'm going to leave it there. The anchoring truth that we have is that this is not all there is. God, all of these papers crumbled up here from a couple weeks ago and just all of the others that are in our lives, the, the, the weights of life, the hurts of life, they're real. No way do we deny them and no way do we push them off and say, ah, oh, just get over it. No, 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 no. Because the fact is, is Jesus told Paul to head to Rome and the truth of the matter is more sufferings is on the trail to Rome. And even his death is ultimately included in this fourth ministry trip. So God, the, the, the fact that this is a former thing's time, the fact that there is a resurrection and that is our sure hope doesn't mean that all of this goes away. It doesn't mean that all of this is nil and void. It doesn't mean that it's not hard and heavy. But it does mean that we can take courage with a sure hope. Actually, it means that the things that are going on today do matter. They do matter. They do carry into the reality of what's going on. What happens today carries into eternity. It is a dot on the line, but it's a very important dot on the line. God, there is coming a time where the just and the unjust will stand before you and give an account, and there will be no excuses. There will be no blame shifting. There will be no other, just us and you. And, and that, even, that brings with it either a great fear or, frankly, a great joy for the person who is covered with the blood of Christ, with the sacrifice of payment for our sin of Christ, for that person who has that assurance, who knows Christ as their Savior and His redeeming work and covering their sin. God, that is going to be a sweet moment. That is going to be a rejoicing moment. When the book is opened and the name is there. Welcome, child of God. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room who's not sure, oh, I ask they would talk with someone around them, come up after the service, talk with someone, God. 
I pray for those right now who are in heavy hurts. We have things in our, our church where heavy relationship situations, heavy life situations, finance situations, cancer situations, life and death situations. Oh God. We are feeble and frail. We need your help. Spirit of God, lift our eyes up. May we behold you and bring who you are down here. Take courage, my friend. Take courage. In Christ's name, amen.